You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And today's episode will cover all things related to aging. So we're going to talk about the process of aging at a cellular level. We'll talk about shifting demographics at the population level and factors that contribute to longevity. Before we do that, let's recap last week's episode. We had a lot of fun last week. Um, We talked about the science of flavors. We even incorporated some data collection tutorials, I don't know, (laughs) information. So that was fun. Um, We discussed the different components involved in taste, including the detection of flavors, taste bud structure and function, as well as some determinants of individual taste preferences. We also, well, when I say we, I mean Andrea, spent some time talking about taste receptor cells and their role in detecting flavors. We talked about how the flavor we detect is composed of specific combinations of chemicals which activate different taste receptor cells. Guys, if you didn't tune into last week's episode, you need to because we actually sampled different ice cream flavors. Um, We talked about why some people prefer certain flavors over others. Um, It was so interesting to see, Andrea, that you and Montana had really similar taste preferences and I I was the outlier. And then we utilized our, uh, well, we utilized some very simple data collection tools and methodologies to demonstrate the diversity and taste preferences. Um, If you didn't check it out, please do tune in. But yeah, so this week, let's just dive into it, Andrea. You know, this is our first episode of 2022. So we did take a a slightly longer interval between our last episode. Um, Normally, we're doing them every other week. And we did give ourselves a a week extra um, for a little holiday reprieve. Um, So welcome back. We hope everybody had a happy new year. We know things are crazy with regard to COVID and Omicron right now. And we hope our podcasts are a nice little reprieve from all of that. I can't believe I forgot that this is our first podcast in the new year. It's it's all a blur. (laughs) All right, Andrea, would you want to live to be 100 years old? I mean, I think it depends. It depends on quality of life. Like if I'm 100 years old and I'm still active and I'm still, I still have good cognition, (laughs) I think that's Mm -hmm. very different than being 100 years old and being infirm or, you know, having bodily functions outside of my own control. So so I don't know if right. I can give a, a clear answer on that. Yeah, you know, I I think about this a lot, and, and I totally agree. What's that saying? It's not the years in your life, it's the life in your years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely, for me, much more about the quality of life than quantity. Though I will say, 
now with kids, like I, I think about how I, you know, I, I hope I live long enough to see them reach certain milestones and all that good stuff. So I agree with everything you're saying. And we're going to cover um, some of those things. You know, the people who do live to be 100 years old, factors that seem to predict longevity, and we'll cover things like quality of life and cognition. Um, so I, I hope that today's episode will be interesting for folks. So let's kick things off with a discussion of uh, life expectancy. So I'm sure uh, most folks know that life expectancy is a key metric that we use to assess population health. Um, You know, in public health, we talk a lot about other metrics such as infant and child mortality, Um, but these are considered to be a bit more narrow than life expectancy, which is considered to be more broad because infant and child mortality, that those focus solely on mortality at a young age, whereas life expectancy captures the mortality along the entire life course. Um, And it tells us the average age of death in a population. So what's crazy, you know, if you read the history books, you'll see that in the pre-modern poor world, um, life expectancy was around 30 years in all regions of the world. So Andrea, we would be (laughs) (laughs) record breaking back in the day. (laughs) Well, you know, and Um, and I know you're going to talk a little bit about that, but there are many factors that contributed to that, right? Infectious diseases, mm -hmm. you know, the lack of technologies that enable us to have sanitation, um, you know, nutritional access. I mean, all sorts of modern technological and medical advancements have really allowed Mm -hmm. us to to increase that life expectancy. And something as seemingly simple as access to clean water, my God, as you just said, you know, proper sanitation, that made such a difference, mm-hmm. right? We saw such a market increase in um, life expectancy once we we figured all that out. So, <clears throat> excuse me, life expectancy increased rapidly since the age of enlightenment. So in the early 19th century, we saw that life expectancy started to increase in the early industrialized countries while it stayed low in the rest of the world. Um, And this, of course, led to very high inequality in how health was distributed across the world. And unfortunately, you know, while this global inequality has decreased over the last few decades, it does still exist. It is good to report that no country in the world currently has a lower life expectancy than the countries with the highest life expectancy in 1800. So as a whole, um, the world has come a long way, but uh, we'd be remiss if we did not note the inequalities that do, of course, exist. So since 1900, the global average life expectancy has more than doubled. It's now above 70 years. Um, In 2019, the country with the lowest life expectancy is the Central African Republic uh, with uh, an average of 53 years life expectancy, whereas in Japan, the life expectancy is 30 years longer at around 83 years. So even within the United States, we know that life expectancy varies significantly by sex and by race. So among the major race sex groups, white females have the highest life expectancy at birth at around 81.3 years, followed by black females at 78 years, 
white males, 76.5 years, followed by black males, 71.8 years. So just to compare, white females' life expectancy at birth, 81 years, and then black males, 71 years. Yeah. That's a decade difference, and that is significant. And I and, and I will talk... Oh, I was yeah. going to mm-hmm. say, Jess, you know, I think it's really striking that, you know, while the U.S. is viewed as one of the leading nations in terms of control, money, military spending, things like that. Right. We we certainly are not at the top of the list for life expectancy. And obviously, as you just illustrated, those disparities are even more magnified when you parse some of the data out. Right. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, um, you know, nature versus nurture and the role of genetics. You know, Andrea, I know you'll, you'll school us on that. But obviously, we can't ignore the social determinants as well that do contribute to those disparities. Um, so broadly, there are kind of two camps on aging. Um, one is a little bit more pessimistic and one is more optimistic. So there are some who view lifespan as very definitively finite, and they think that we are rapidly approaching or have already reached a ceiling on lifespan. And no matter what we do, you know, we're really not going to make any, we're not going to move the needle too much on life expectancy. And then there are those who anticipate that we can still make considerable gains in life expectancy um, and increase the number of those who live well beyond 100 years. Um, so we'll we'll talk about those people. So a centenarian is a person who lives to be 100 or more years old. And as medical and social advances really (laughs) mitigate diseases of old age. You know, we're seeing so many more people live to be older than 100 years. And that number of centenarians in the world is increasing sharply. So the UN estimates that there were about 95,000 centenarians in 1990 and more than 450,000 thousand centenarians in 2015 and they predict that by 2100 this number will increase to 25 million i mean are people yeah sorry i was gonna say it's 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 really interesting you know data and observations and i think you know we get into a little bit of this kind of moral debate right like is it are you living to 100 with good quality life or are you living to 100 because you know, medical technologies are maintaining you on life support. And I think, you know, it's going to vary from person to person, right? There are 100-year-old people who are still kicking, right? Um, but I think it right. gets into this question about wh- where is the intervention line kind of drawn there, right? That is such an important question question. And in health policy, we talk about that quite a bit. And and we'll talk about that briefly, um, I hope, on this episode about how a large majority of our healthcare dollars are spent in that, you know, final year of life. And a lot of people feel that that's an improper use of our healthcare dollars. I don't know. It's very controversial Mm -hmm. and we we will talk about it. Um, (laughs) We we don't shy away from controversy here. (laughs) No, we don't. And we pay the price. (laughs) 
<laughs> in our messages and DMs, my God. Um, what really blows my mind is that there are some people who actually live beyond their 110th birthday. Of course, this, you know, th- this number of people is, is far smaller, but these people are called super centenarians. And the first validated cases of these super centenarians emerge in the 1960s. And and since then, the numbers have actually multiplied by a factor of at least 10. But we don't know precisely how many people um, live to, to be at least 110. But in Japan alone, we know that the population of super centenarians grew to 146 from 22 between 2005 and 2015, which is a nearly sevenfold increase. So... There are many ongoing longitudinal studies on longevity, and there are some really cool ones I want to describe, but there are these areas called blue zones. Have you heard of blue zones, Andrea? I have, yeah. (laughs) It's really kind of interesting, and and it intersects so many different areas of science, which I, I find fascinating. Yeah. And and so these blue zones are areas around the world where we see a high proportion of centenarians where people on average live much longer than normal. Um, And there's one really popular study uh, led by National Geographic. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, And they identified these blue zones and they include Italy, well, parts of Italy, Greece, Japan, Costa Rica, and California. And, And we'll talk about that in just a bit. But most research has focused focused on the group's genetics, diet, and physical health rather than their mental health or certain personality traits that might be predictive of longevity. That's really interesting. So there's... Right? So there's one study that's very well known. Um, It's called the New England Centenarian Study, NECS. It was started in 1995. It's a longitudinal study. It's still going on today. They're still recruiting people. And they're trying to develop this model of aging well. Um, So I I visited their website. I'll I'll pull some stats here. And and of course, we'll link this in our show notes. Um, So they say centenarians markedly delay disability towards the end of their very long lives at an average of 93 years. That's 33 years beyond the age of 60. We regard these individuals as wonderful models of aging well. Some of our subjects, about 15%, have no clinically demonstrable disease at age 100 years, and we call them escapers. This just blows my mind. I feel like at the age of 35... wouldn't be called, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't fit into that category. About 43% are delayers. These are subjects who did not exhibit an age-related disease until age 80 years or later. And then finally, there are about 42% of subjects who are survivors. And these are people with clinically demonstrable diseases prior to the age of 80 years. Uh, supporting the compression of morbidity hypothesis, that is one approaches the limits of lifespan, diseases must be delayed or escaped towards the end of these longest lived. We have observed among super centenarians that health span equals lifespan. So they believe that instead of the aging myth, the older you get, the sicker you get, it's much more the case of the older you get, the healthier you've been. 
in. So, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So if I can kind of summarize that for for our listeners, so basically this this study, the New England Centenarian study, um, has observed that among these individuals who are achieving the centenarian status, um, they actually generally have a healthier life overall, and many of mm-hmm. them are getting to these age milestones without encountering illness or disease that are typically hallmarks of aging or are predictors of of life expectancy. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Because I feel like I was jumbling my words. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I think it's so but I'll, I think it's really funny that, you know, and I think we'll talk a little bit about this, but you were talking about some of the blue zone research and they're they're looking at physical health, genetics and diet, and they're not looking at things like personality or mental health. And and I find it interesting that Costa Rica, for example, is included there. Um, which is not typically considered an affluent country, but there are a lot mm-hmm. of expats that live there. Um, so that might be skewing some of the data. But Costa Ricans are considered some of the happiest people in the world. And, you know, having been there twice, I can understand why. And so, you know, it would be fascinating to see some of the the mental health um, data alongside the, the physical health and the genetics data. And we are going to talk about that. There's some really cool research on that. And P.S., we need to talk about Costa Rica. I am dying to go there. <laughs> so I need to pick your brain about that. So, yeah, put a pin in that. <laughs> All right. So I'll just very briefly um, recap some of the initial, um, f- some of the other findings from this New England study, because, well, they saw that, you know, the, the, that not all centenarians are alike, right? They, they vary widely in years of education, socioeconomic status, religion, ethnicity, patterns of diet, but they did find some patterns and they did, uh, you know, some of the centenarians that they studied, they, they have a number of characteristics in common. And there is a long list here. I'm just going to very briefly go through them and then we'll link to more. Um, and then Andrea, I really would love to learn from you a little bit more about aging as a cellular process. So let me just quickly recap. So few centenarians are obese. Um, Substantial smoking history is rare. Uh, Centenarians are better able to handle stress than the majority of people. So I'm out. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Some centenarians had no significant changes in their thinking abilities, which disproves this expectation that that many or all centenarians uh, would suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's or or other things like that. Um, Many centenarian women had a a history of bearing children after the age of 35 years and even 40 years. I thought that was really interesting. Um, But they did note that it's probably not the act of bearing a child in one's 40s, but rather doing so may be an indicator that, you know, these women's reproductive systems are aging slowly and the rest of their body Mm -hmm. is as well. Um, At least 50% of centenarians had first-degree relatives and our grandparents who also achieve very old age, and many have exceptionally old siblings. Uh, Many of the children of centenarians appear to be following their parents' footsteps with marked delays in cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and overall mortality. Some families demonstrate incredible clustering for exceptional longevity. Um, And and we're, again, we're going to talk, you know, this sort of hints at some sort of a genetic component, so we'll talk more about that. 
let's see here. Based upon standardized personality testing, the offspring of centenarians score low in neuroticism and high in extroversion. And again, they did note that genetic uh, variation plays a very strong role in exceptional longevity. So let me stop there. Andrea, can you talk to us a little bit about aging? Yeah. <laughs> like, at a, you know, at a biological level? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know people age, right? And that leads to the aging of a population. And, and if we're not replacing, you know, those aging individuals with more children, you know, the, the average age of a, a given population is going to shift to be an older demographic. But on an organism level, right, our bodies are aging, right? It's not just, oh, we're getting old. There are all these cellular processes that are going on in our body, and that ultimately is going to determine how we age, how healthily we age, um, what sorts of chronic diseases and illnesses might arise. So, you know, ultimately very broadly, every organism is composed of cells. And in a human, that complex network and the individual identity of all of these cells determine the structure and the function of everything in our body, right? So so we have muscle fibers that are made up of muscle cells, and those muscle cells have very specific structure and function that enable us to contract those muscles and transport energy and oxygen to our muscles and do those sorts of things that we need them to do. And that's a very different structure and function than, say, our eyeball cells, right? So all of our ocular cells are made up of rods and cone cells, and they form the structure of our eyeball, the ability to um, sense light, sense colors, create images from all these things we sense. And so, you know, these complex networks and the, the process of differentiation gives all of the cells in our body this, these very intricate abilities. But every cell in our body was once what we call a stem cell, which are these cells that have the ability to become any other cell type. And as we develop in utero as a fetus, these cells differentiate and they they become these customized terminal cell types. So skin cells and eye cells and liver cells and fat cells and immune cells. And while as adults or as, you know, born organisms, born people, we do have some reservoirs of what we call adult stem cells. Um, These are typically located in our bone marrow. So if you've ever been a bone marrow transplant donor or recipient, we're replenishing those stem cells. Um, Those stem cell reservoirs enable us to replenish cells as, as they age. Um, Now that's not infinite. So, you know, this question of can we, can we extend life infinitely? You know, I think, Biology is really going to be the limiting factor there. But in our body, we have all these specialized cell types, and each cell type has a finite lifespan. And each cell ultimately divides through this process called mitosis. Flashback to high school biology, everybody. (laughs) But basically, cells in our bodies, um, aside from our reproductive cells, eggs, and sperm, undergo this process called mitosis, which basically you have a a single cell and it and it creates duplicate daughter cells. So it just divides in half. Um, And those identical cells replace it. And then ultimately that original cell is no longer there. And so some of this cell division, this mitosis, helps replace cells as they die. But every cell type has a finite number of those divisions that it can undergo, and that's where those stem cells 
um, arise to help replenish these different cell types. So for example, skin cells on our, you know, both inside our, you know, we have skin in our bodies, epithelial cells in our digestive tract and, and things like that. But skin cells very broadly have a lifespan of about two to three weeks. So they're turning over and they're dying every two to three weeks. Colon cells, so that's in your, you know, your lower gastrointestinal tract, those have a turnover rate of every four days. And you can imagine some of this turnover, some of this lifespan is dependent on the function of these cells. So in the colon, you have things that are kind of flushing through very routinely. Um, So cells are going to slough off and die as a function of that. Um, But in contrast, something like neuronal cells, brain cells, they exist forever for our lifetime they don't die and and ultimately that leads to the structure and function of our brain now as i mentioned these cells replenish each each other by dividing so each time a cell will divide it creates two identical daughter cells Um, now with epithelial cells which are skin cells this is very important if you imagine you know you get a scratch or you you know you you get a wound on your skin you need those cells to have the ability to divide and to help heal that wound which is also aided by our immune system Um, but the this division of skin cells happens about every week in contrast something like neuronal cells which again exist for our lifetime they don't ever divide with very rare exceptions so what that basically means is if you get damage to your brain your neuronal cells are not dividing in order to repair that damage and that's why these diseases of aging particularly dementia related or or neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's like Huntington's like Alzheimer's they're so debilitating because your brain doesn't heal like other parts of your body does this episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV the Kia EV9 with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. So when your cells are undergoing this division process, they're replicating their DNA. And if you remember any of the conversations we've talked about with regard to cancer or even with regard to COVID, every time a cell replicates, when it reproduces its DNA, there's always the chance for errors to occur. Now in human cells, we have a lot of checkpoints to ensure this doesn't happen. And I'm not gonna get into the nitty gritty of it, um, but one of the biggest checkpoints are these structures called telomeres and telomeres are essentially protective caps on the end of our chromosomes so we know that humans have dna and that dna is condensed into chromosomes right Um, and those chromosomes are passed from cell to cell so you can think of a telomere like the plastic end on the shoelace um, on your shoes and over time every time that cell divides, a little bit of that plastic end gets worn down and worn down and worn down. And eventually what's going to happen is there's not going to be any plastic cap left. And that's where you start getting into the actual DNA of our cells. And that's where damage can occur that can lead to mutations, that could lead to the development of cancer. Um, And that's why we see a lot of these 
illnesses of aging are often associated with pathologies like cancer, like autoimmune disorders, etc. So when we've kind of eroded these telomeres, the cell can no longer safely divide without running the risk of leading to cancer progression or leading to other sorts of mutations that can affect how our body performs and and exists. So the cell will either undergo a process of what we call cell death, program cell death, which is called apoptosis, meaning it sacrifices itself for the rest of the body um, so that that cell doesn't continue to survive and potentially lead to cancer or it undergoes a process called senescence, which basically means that cell is old, it is just going to kind of stop reproduction, it's going to hang out quiescent until it ultimately dies. And so these processes are, are going on in all of our cells. And so that's why different organs, different systems in our body can potentially age at different rates because these cells are all dividing at different rates. They all have finite different lifespans. um, And this all kind of culminates in us aging as a whole. Um, So one example that I like to use because it's a very physical effect of aging or a physical example is, is skin wrinkles. And so as we age, we have all these different layers in our, in our skin, the epidermis and the dermis and, and all sorts of other things. And these are all comprised of different cell types that all have different structure and function. And so as people age, the cells in our skin, particularly in that dermal layer, which is our middle layer, the cells divide more slowly. And as a result, they're not replenished as quickly. And so the layer of cells or the multiple layers of cells thins. And so as that thins, you also have these these fibers, these collagen fibers, these elastin fibers, and this provides what we call a matrix between the cells, which maintains structure and function. And as those cells become depleted, this network, this matrix, it loosens. And so that creates depressions, which then lead to what looks like visible wrinkles on the exterior of our skin. And so these are processes that happen naturally as we age. But again, you can imagine these processes are all occurring in all of our different organ systems throughout our entire body. Go ahead, Jess. No, I'm just, I'm hanging on your every word here. I mean, this is so interesting. Obviously, there's an entire, you know, multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry um, that, you know, profits off of uh, our wanting to reverse the aging process and get rid of skin wrinkles. And I'm just thinking of all the face peels and serums. And anyway, sorry, keep keep going. No, but but it's actually, you know, it's, it's, we, there are things we can do to kind of alleviate some of the physical, you know, um, characteristics of it. But ultimately, you can't can't outrun aging because this is a cellular process. Um, now, right. now, as I mentioned, this is occurring with all of our organ systems throughout our body, um, and that includes the immune system. And so, the immune system aging is called immunosenescence. And because the immune system is the most complex and intricate system in our body. Ultimately, immune system aging is going to affect everything. And so as the immune system ages, and we've talked about this at length with regard to vaccinations, um, it leads to a variety of characteristics of aging. So within your immune system, you have all these different organs. You have, you know, your spleen and your lymph nodes and 
and you have, you know, different immune cell types. You have the innate immune cells, you have the adaptive immune cells, which include B cells and T cells, and they all have different roles and functions and things like that. But as you age, what ultimately is happening is that those cells are aging too. And so their ability to react as quickly or to create as targeted responses or to surveil and eliminate cancer cells as they crop up, this all becomes diminished. Um, So as you age, this process of immunosenescence means that you might not be able to fight off infections as easily. If you get a wound, um, so say you fell and you cut your leg, you know, the the ability of your immune system to heal that wound is going to be diminished. So it's going to heal more slowly. And that's also impacted by cardiovascular system and blood flow. Andrea, is this at all related? I know you, you speak a lot about how, you know, even like thinking about elderly people who get vaccinated, how they don't mount as robust of an immune response. Yeah. Is that somehow exactly. that's related exactly. to what you're saying? Okay. So, so all of this immunosenescence means that your immune system is not functioning optimally, right? So some of these cells are not as responsive. Some of them are over-responsive. You're having some dysfunction there. And, you know, some people are obviously going to have a more pronounced effect of this than others, in part largely due to genetics. Genetics are a huge determinant of how we age, um, in addition to a lot of those other socioeconomic factors. Um, But some people are just going to be more prone to this because they have these inherited genetic mutations or things like that. And so you know, yes, you're going to mount less robust responses after vaccination, which can also mean that you're more susceptible to infections. Um, It also potentially means that those illnesses that are a a consequence of aging, such as cancer, may start to arise as you age. um, Because cancer is a disease where your cells stop behaving as they should, and they start proliferating out of control. And normally our immune system is surveilling our body and can eliminate those before it turns into an actual tumor But as you age, the ability of the immune system to seek and destroy those cancer cells is also impacted. Um, In addition, the more your cells reproduce, so as you age, the more potential mutations can occur, which of course also leads to the progression of cancers. So all of these factors are going to contribute to this immunosenescence, which ultimately is going to be translated into aging of of our whole body um, on the whole. Hmm. So Andrea, we... I, and I don't want to take us off track if you had more you wanted to, to add here. I mean, I could talk about that I all day, to... but I, I, don't want to, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty. I want to provide a high level summary. <laughs> so we, we often get asked, and I know, you know this is a question many people have, the, the role of genetics versus environment and aging. What would you say? I mean, do you, if someone asks you, do you feel that nature or nurture plays, um, play, plays a, a bigger role in the aging process. Oh, Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's that? so hard to decouple them, I think, because we know, obviously, genetics are, are first and foremost, they're kind of dictating, you know, what, what template you're given, right? So some people are going to be at a genetic advantage and some people are going to be at a genetic disadvantage. But your environment, your access to healthcare, your ability to access healthful foods, even things like, you know, your ability to de-stress and sleep well, all of these things that contribute to, 
you know, a healthful immune system, which is ultimately going to help contribute to healthful aging, can impact mm-hmm. how you age, your longevity and your quality of life as you age. And, and there's another thing that I find really interesting. So when we talk about nurture, we think a lot about upbringing and, and you know, healthcare access and socioeconomic status and education levels. But there's also this phenomenon called epigenetics, which actually means that in your body, in your cells, your DNA is organized very um, rigidly. And it has these modifications that allow certain genes to be expressed or certain genes to not be expressed. And these these are affected by um, these proteins called histones that wrap DNA kind of like beads on a string. And those histones are also modified by adding little chemical groups to them, like um, acetyl groups or methyl groups. And so these, this process of, of adding methyl groups or acetyl groups or removing them, um, it actually means that when someone has a child, those modifications to the DNA are actually inherited as well. And so it's not just the sequence of the DNA, but it's also how the DNA is modified or how the DNA is organized around these histone proteins. And so this is called epigenetics because it's outside of the genetics, but it's still inherited. And we've found that traumatic events or experiences that happen in a person's life can alter how that DNA is organized in a way that it's passed down to their offspring. And so in reality... Some of this nurture is actually heritable as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned it on here, but my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I know there's a ton of research around, you know, epigenetics and the role of trauma. And, you know, I, there's been some, there have been some studies on Holocaust survivors and how certain things, as you're saying, are actually passed down, you know, that these people experienced in their environment are actually passed on um, genetically. Yeah, Such it's, a fascinating it's, field. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And it's not, like the memory of an of of a, an encounter or an occurrence it's right, it's the right. trauma affects how their cells respond which ultimately changes the organization of the dna in their cells which is then passed down to their offspring which is just mm-hmm. absolutely mind mind-boggling um you know and and that can ultimately affect you know the next generation of, of people. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not just trauma too, right? For example, you can imagine if there's a region in the world where they have access to very specific food sources. And so as a result, they have specific genes that are activated that help them better digest those particular food sources. You know, that means that those genes are going to be activated, but potentially some other genes are going to be suppressed. And so those sorts of things are also going to be inherited into future generations as well. I think we need an entire episode on epigenetics. <laughs> there is so much to say. It's so fascinating. It really is. So there are these people who study the aging process. They're called gerontologists. Um, and I, you know, I, I try to, to 
to dig into this question of, you know, uh, nature versus nurture. And obviously there are different schools of thought. Um, the common answer that I was coming across was about uh, 70 to 80% environment and 30 to 20% genes in terms of impact on aging. So gerontologists often cite studies of lifespans among uh, identical twins reared apart to describe the genetic and environmental components of aging. And that's where we get the, um, you know, the spread, the percentage breakdown that I just mentioned. That seems to be where we fall based on these um, studies of identical twins. And this also makes sense in the context of results from uh, many studies done on Seventh-day Adventists at Loma Linda University, um, who as a group have um, among the the longest average age life expectancy in the United States. It's uh, 88 years for men and 89 years for women. Um, And we'll talk more about this group. They're actually in one of the blue zones that we mentioned earlier. Um, And the main attributes that these individuals have in common uh, is that their religion, for the most part, asks that they have very good lifestyle choices. They tend to be vegetarian, they don't smoke, they regularly exercise, and they spend a lot of time uh, with their families and with their religion. Um, There was a study published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Uh, It was based on Washington. Washington state mortality data and they found that Washington wait Washingtonians is that right I don't know if I'm saying that right people (laughs) from Washington um, (laughs) who live in highly walkable mixed age communities are more likely to live to their 100th birthday. Uh, They also found socioeconomic status to be correlated, and an additional analysis showed that geographic clusters where the probability of reaching centenarian age is uh, where the, excuse me, where the, um, where the concentration of centenarians is high, they tend to be located in urban areas and smaller towns with higher socioeconomic status. So this, you know, adds to this body of evidence that the social and, and environmental factors do contribute significantly to longevity. So, Andrea, did you ever see, it's one of my very favorite TED Talks um, by Dan Butner and the Blue Zones. I haven't seen I don't, his if, if TED can, Talk, now. <laughs> okay, I have to send it to you and we have to link it. Okay. <laughs> we'll definitely link it in our show notes. So... Dan Butner, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing his last name, he's an American National Geographic Fellow and New York Times bestselling author. And he led this National Geographic expedition. And it, you know, it started as um, this expedition to uncover the secrets of longevity, but it evolved into this discovery of five places around the world where people consistently live over 100 years. And again, these have been dubbed the blue zones. So Butner and then this team of demographers, scientists, anthropologists, they were they looked for patterns. They were able to distill the evidence-based common denominators of these blue zones into nine commonalities that they have called the power nine. And they have taken these principles into communities across the U.S. They work with policymakers, uh, local businesses, schools, and individuals to shape the environments of the Blue Zones project communities. 
what they have found that doing so has, you know, they have been able to increase life expectancy, reduce obesity, um, and improve the overall health of certain communities. So I just, I, I want to talk briefly about w- uh, what the blue zones are. So, and then we'll talk a little bit about the power nine. And these are really distilled. Like I said, there's an, there's a TED talk that really digs into this. There's tons of, of data published on this, but let's just sum it up. So the blue zones are Sardinia, which is located off the coast of Italy. And Sardinia is home to the world's longest lived men. There's Okinawa in the South Pacific Islands. It's home to the longest-lived women. The Loma Linda uh, Seventh-day Adventist community that I mentioned previously, they live in California, and they outlive the average American by a decade. There's, and I'm, am I mispronouncing this, Andrea, Nicoya? No, which is a st- <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. That's right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's beautiful. Listen to that. Okay. It's a city in Costa Rica. Um, Nicoyans spend just 15% of what America does on healthcare, and they're more than twice as likely than Americans to reach a healthy age of 90 years. And there's, oh gosh, I hope I'm not butchering this, Ikaria, which is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. People on this tiny island live eight years longer than Americans. They experience 20% less cancer, half the rate of heart disease, and almost no dementia. All right. So what are the power nine? What are some of the common denominators that are found across these blue zones? Um, And this is taken directly from the National uh, National Geographic has published. Um, So just bear with me here. Okay. So number one is that these people move naturally. So, you know, in the U.S., I think of, you know, exercise. So many people think of gyms and lifting weights and pumping iron and And yeah, all that kind of stuff. So people in these environments, they don't necessarily go to the gym, but instead they're doing things that are constantly having them move without thinking about it. So they grow gardens, they're climbing mountains, um, they don't have mechanical conveniences for house and yard work. So this labor, this natural movement is just kind of built into their lives. The second thing is purpose. So the Okinawans call it ikigai and the Nikoyans call it plan de vida. And so for both, it translates to why I wake up in the morning. And so it's said that these people have this sense of purpose. And apparently it's worth up to seven years of extra life expectancy. Wow. Next. Isn't that cool? Um, Next is downshift. So, of course, even people who live in the blue zones experience stress. They're not living in bubbles. And we know that stress leads to chronic inflammation, and it's associated with every uh, major age-related disease. People in the blue zones are people that uh, they take a few moments each day to remember their their ancestors. It helps them basically shed that stress. So the Adventists pray, the Ikarians take a nap, and Sardinians do happy hour. And this makes me want to move to Sardinia. <laughs> um, are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. 
I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. All right, next is the 80% rule. And please, I apologize if I'm butchering pronunciations here, but uh, Harahachibu, so that's the Okinawan 2,500-year-old Confucian mantra that's said before meals that reminds them to stop eating when their stomachs are about 80% fall okay um, 20 percent. but, but gap. how do they really gauge that like let's be real i know i know <laughs> i was thinking the same basically before they feel stuffed yeah. they stop eating and this, the the 20 percent gap between not being hungry and feeling full um you know could contribute to uh maintaining a, a healthy weight so there's a lot of uh, people in the blue i was gonna yeah, say there's sorry, a lot of really on. interesting data about mild caloric restriction and longevity um not like caloric restriction to lose weight but um slight caloric restriction can actually increase longevity and and it goes back to this kind of cellular stress and metabolizing macromolecules and maybe we'll throw that in the epigenetics episode even though it's not yeah no we we have to and people in the blue zones eat their smallest meal in the late afternoon or early evening and then they do not eat any more the rest of the day All right, next is plant slant. So, Andrea, we 100% have to do an episode on vegetarian diet versus, you know, carnivorous diet. There's so much chatter around that. But people in the uh, blue zones tend to have uh, more plant-based diets or at least have more plants in their diets. So they have a lot of beans, um, a lot of, you know, soy, lentils, and meat, mostly pork, is eaten on average only five times per month and smaller serving sizes of meat. Uh, The next, they call wine at five. So people in all blue zones, except the Adventists, of course, drink alcohol moderately and regularly. And moderate drinkers outlive the non-drinkers. Next is belong. All but five of the 263 centenarians that they interviewed as part of this research belong to some faith-based community. Denomination does not seem to matter. Uh, Research shows that attending faith-based services four times per month will add four to 14 years of life expectancy. Next is loved ones first. Uh, Successful centenarians in the blue zones put their families first. Uh, They keep aging parents and grandparents nearby or in the home. And this actually lowers disease and mortality rates of children in the home too. Uh, They commit to a life partner, which has been shown to add about three years of life expectancy. And they invest in their children with time and love. Lastly is the right tribe. The world's longest lived people chose or were born into social circles that supported healthy behaviors. Um, so Okinawans created, oh gosh, I'm definitely going to mispronounce this. Uh, how would you pronounce this word? Do you see what I'm looking at here? Moais? Moais? 
Moais, Moais, um, groups of five friends that committed to each other for life. Uh, research from the Framingham studies shows that smoking, obesity, happiness, and even loneliness are contagious. So the social networks of long-lived people have favorably shaped their health behavior. Well, you can so also, basically birds of a feather yeah, flock I mean, together. But you can yeah. also extrapolate that, you know, we know mental illness, you know, has poor prognosis with a lot of these, you know, long-term health outcomes. And so if you have community, obviously, you know, that's going to contribute a positive impact. For sure. So I think this is really cool. Um, Obviously, you know, it, it doesn't mean that all of these things are necessarily going to mean that a person lives to be 100 years old, but we're just talking about patterns that have been found among centenarians. So Andrea, you mentioned something earlier, and I totally agree. You know, we we have to talk about cognition, you know, cognitive health late in life, because I mean, I wouldn't want to live to be 100 years, but be in very poor cognitive health. Right. Um, And there are studies that have looked into this. So um, although the incidence of dementia increases exponentially with age, some people who live to be 100 years, they fully retain their cognitive abilities. Um, So there's this really cool study called the 100 plus study. It's an ongoing prospective cohort study um, of Dutch centenarians who self-report to be cognitively healthy, um, their first degree family members and their respective partners. So it's these people who are cognitively healthy and these researchers are trying to understand what are the factors that predict uh, cognitive health late in life. So they collect demographics, life history, medical history, genealogy, neuropsychological data, and blood samples. And they're followed, these centenarians are followed annually until death. Um, Pet MRI scans and feces donation are optional. And almost 30% of centenarians agree to post-mortem uh, post-mortem brain donation. As of September 2018, 332 centenarians were included in this study. So just briefly, compared to their birth cohort peers, centenarians from this cohort attained significantly higher levels of education, were from a higher socioeconomic uh, background, attained higher socioeconomic status, uh, and had more children. And and all of this does confirm previous findings that these factors are associated with the chance of reaching 100 years in cognitive health. Um, the combined contributions of these features, which are often concentrated within families, and the enrichment with this genetically heritable allele, and Andrew, you might know more about this allele, I, I don't, um, but, but this combination seems to explain a considerable proportion of the high heritability of reaching 100 years with maintained cognitive health. Um, of course, these features don't apply to all centenarians, and only a third of the cohort carry that specific allele that I mentioned. So this suggests that additional protective factors may account for the the cohort phenotype. Yeah, and I think we also have to consider, you know, there's a lot of things that can occur as we age, as I mentioned, you know, neuronal cells do not regenerate. So if you have any sort of traumatic brain injury or stroke or brain bleed, like those are all going to contribute to things that could ultimately lead to cognitive decline um, separate from your genetics because those are injuries that physical injuries that occur as 
as you live. Um, and then, of course, we have people that have inherited genetic defects that predispose them to developing neurodegenerative diseases and, and those sorts of things as well. So, Andrea, I know this is maybe a, a longer episode than we typically record, but I just, the, my health policy brain, I just want to chat briefly about healthcare spending later in life, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, a lot of people think that the U.S. in particular spends too much money on the dying. So, every year, approximately 5% of Medicare beneficiaries die. So, Medicare beneficiaries are, are people over the age of 65 or older. Um, but one quarter of spending occurs in the last year of life. Um, so, side by side, these stats have fed a widely held belief that a lot of the end of life care goes to waste um, and we overspend on catastrophic, life saving end of life care. So there was this study published in the Journal of Science uh, back in 2018, which we'll link, which really pushed back on this notion. So it was a team of researchers. They were economists uh, and one physician. They used machine learning to predict mortality and then re-examine spending. And in their new estimate, patients with the highest one-year mortality risk accounted for less than 5% of spending, which is obviously significantly less than this um, one quarter claim. So before the analysis, the co-authors, who were from very prestigious uh, organizations and universities, including Stanford, Harvard, and the National Bureau of Economic Research, thought that patients who die within the year would have extremely high mortality risks at the time of hospital admission. But instead, the data revealed that patients in the group with the steepest risk still were slightly more likely to survive the year than not. Um, so even with rich, rich data and sophisticated algorithms, predicting life and death has odds similar to flipping heads or tails. So basically, it seems that, you know, physicians and hospitals and, econ and economists behind the scenes can't really do a great job of predicting death uh, within any, you know, degree of certainty. So if that's the case, are we really you know, wasting these resources on providing care. Yeah. And I think, so then I think it's, a, yeah. I think it's mm -hmm. a great point. I think it's super important. Um, and I think, you know, if we want to focus on health disparities, you know, we need to mm -hmm. focus on bringing up the average life expectancy. And so if you notice, if you look at the trends in U.S. populations, we have, you know, we have the opposite of a normal distribution. We have you know, a very large proportion of people that have a very high life expectancy, and we have a very large proportion that have a low life expectancy. And a lot of that is due to inequities in healthcare access, ability to pay for healthcare, you know, all these sorts of disparities and inequities. And, you know, ultimately, if you want to have a more healthy population on the whole, you have to bring up those that population that has lower life expectancy. Absolutely. Just a little bit more about this. There's so much here about bioethics. There's actually a, a, a doctor, uh, Dr. Stephanie Harmon, she works in palliative care and biomedical ethics at Stanford. And her whole point was, you know, just because someone is seriously ill with an uncertain prognosis doesn't mean that their healthcare spending is wasteful. And Stat News published an article and they posed a 
really interesting question scenario. So basically, and I'll try to do this quickly, uh, implicit in the dialogue about wasting money in the last year of life is the assumption that there is a good way to distinguish the sick and dying patient from the sick patient who will survive. So they gave the scenario, imagine you paid $5 at a parking meter on a Sunday, unaware that street parking is free on weekends. If you happen to miss the sign that reads free parking, then you wasted five bucks. If on the other hand, there was no such sign, then it would have been impossible to know uh, when feeding the meter that your payment went to waste. So similarly, if a physician who opts to keep a patient in the ICU on a ventilator for $1,500 per day is unable to predict uh, their patient's fate, the care is less, you know, decidedly inefficient. So I don't know. It just raises all these bioethical issues and concerns. There's so much, I don't know, disagreement and, and you know, around this topic. I'd love to explore it further Um on a future episode. But one implication is that evaluations of end-of-life care need to look more at, uh, you know, than just spending and, and whether a patient dies. We really need to consider the quality of care that's delivered, the patient's quality of life, and this might mean that we need to really comb through intervention by intervention to determine which policies, procedures, and treatments do produce health benefits and, and which do not. So that's my uh, health policy soapbox spiel. I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I mean, we covered a lot of ground today. I mean, my spiel is is um, you know we need we need better healthcare access that's affordable for everybody, and that ultimately is going to mm-hmm. benefit longevity of populations on the whole. And um, I'll keep I'll keep singing that, and and that's ultimately going to you know affect our cells our cellular aging processes access to healthful foods you know ability to you know access mental health care all of these sorts of things that can contribute to the aging process all right andrea do you want to take us home sure so thanks for joining us today we hoped you learned a thing or two and if you like our pod please share with your friends and family and please leave us a review on apple podcasts Um, We also want to give a special thanks to our patrons who help support the pod. If you want to help too, check it out at www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. We have three tiers of membership to choose from. Um, They all include access to our private Facebook group where we answer questions on the fly. um, And we do have monthly private live Q&As. We do want to give special shout outs to some of our mad scientist patrons. So this episode, we want to give a special thanks today to Tara Jean, Samantha Hughes, Kaylin Searle, Kira Swenson, and the cats, Batman, Robin, and Catwoman. Next episode, we're going to have a special guest on to discuss the psychology of group behavior, particularly with regard to cult mentality and how it relates to the anti-vaccine movement. This is actually particularly timely with the rise of many prominent pop culture personalities who have cultivated these sorts of anti-vaccine sentiments. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us there on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a